I remember it if it was yesterday. They had a little round beanie they put on our heads, and the one that I had was white and purple stripes around it. And they had little wires in it, and they put it on our head, and then two girls stood behind a lead screen. And they said, don't move. And they pushed a button, and it seemed like I saw some flashes. And then that was all. And then I remember her taking the cap off, and she told the other nurse, oh my God, I've given him too much. I remember that as if it was yesterday. I will never forget that. It was 1927, and Virtus Hardiman was just five years old when he and nine other young black children from Lyle Station, Indiana, were brought to the basement of the Gibson County Sanitarium in the nearby town of Princeton to receive a special treatment for ringworm. What they and their parents did not know was that the so-called treatment was actually radiation, which was widely popular but poorly understood at the time. This trip to the hospital forever altered Virtus's life. The radiation exposure disfigured his scalp and later dissolved his skull. He hid the damage under a wig and a hat for more than 70 years. Near the end of his life, Virtus confided in a friend from church, Wilbert Smith, who worked with him to make the documentary film Hole in the Head, A Life Revealed, as well as a book with the same title. This is Color Code, a podcast from STAT. I'm Nicholas St. Fleur, a science and health reporter here. In over eight episodes, I'm taking a look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind our country's stark racial health inequities. This week is our eighth and final episode for season one, the story of Virtus Hardiman. I first stumbled upon the story of Virtus Hardiman last year while doing research into Jonathan Jackson who you might remember from our previous episode on clinical trials. I came across a presentation that Dr. Jackson had given that touched upon the shameful history of clinical research in America. It featured a photograph that horrified me, a graphic image of an elderly black man with a massive, disfiguring wound that consumed the top half of his head. The picture was shocking, and I immediately wanted to know more. After reading about Smith's documentary, I wondered why this glaring example of medical exploitation was not widely known, when to me it seemed to be as egregious as the more infamous stories of Henrietta Lacks and the Tuskegee syphilis trials. My colleagues at Color Code and I reached out to Wilbert Smith to speak with him about Virtus. We both sang in the church choir. And uh, Virtus was a little five point five uh, eight inch individual who stood to my left. I stand about six foot two. Became we became very very close friends, and he always wore this little strange wig. And uh, of course, I could not only look down on him, but I could look down upon the top of his head meaning I became became very interested in him and his uniquenesses 
and used to say things like, doesn't he know that this is a wig? Maybe I should take it upon myself to give him some advice on styling because it was an Elvis Presley kind of shaped wig and kind of tall on the top and short on the sides and had no gray hair in it, even though Virtus was well into his seventies and eighties by then. So I, I, we, after 20 years of friendship, I finally got to know Virtus. Wilbert said Virtus was a well-loved landlord in their Pasadena, California community, who was known to run to folks who had trouble finding housing elsewhere. In addition to singing in the choir with Virtus, Wilbert was also his Allstate insurance agent for many years. Because Virtus was kind of like the community's grandfather. Everybody loved him. Wilbert had no idea what Virtus had been through as a child. He had no idea why Virtus's head was always covered, first with a wig and then a beanie, until one sweltering hot day when Virtus walked into his office. He came in, perspiration flowing, sat down in front of my desk and started crying. And he said, you've always wondered why I have worn this wig and now you see me wearing this beanie all the time. And then he says, I'm going to show you. He took this hat off. He took this beanie off and showed me the most amazing wound that I had ever witnessed from anyone in my lives, given whether it be cinema or whether it be in real life. Virtus told Wilbert he was tired. Tired of wearing a wig? Tired of wearing a hat. Tired of hiding who he was from the world. He took a deep breath. And through his tears, he shared with Wilbert the story of how he was experimented on at just five years old. The way that Virtus remembers it all starting is that there had been an outbreak of scalp ringworm at the local school. Virtus was too young to go to school himself but he caught it from his older brother, Melvin. Lyle Station was a black community founded by freed slaves and made up of mostly poor sharecroppers, many of whom were also family members and relatives to Virtus. According to Wilbert, who interviewed several people from the town who were alive at the time, a school district trustee happened to be related to the head physician at the county medical center hospital. So the superintendent takes it upon himself to go and visit the homes of each and every one of these students who were eighth grade or younger and told them that they had a new, innovative, creative approach to treating scalpel ringworm, and they needed to have the parents sign the permission slip, and everything else would be wonderful. The ten children, nine of which were Hardimans, were brought by bus to the hospital, which was in a neighboring town. The bus driver was actually Virtus's Uncle Clift. When they arrived at the hospital, the head physician led the children to the basement. He told Uncle Clift to stay with the bus. We were in the basement of the General Hospital in Princeton, Indiana, in the basement, because blacks weren't allowed above the first floor. 
Go ahead and explain what where we are, Virtus. I can hear you on tape. It's on the tape. We're at the hospital in Princeton, Indiana. And here's where I uh, had my uh, x-ray treatments for ringworm, which took all my hair out in this very building in the basement. I'll never forget it. Never. The children were lined up one by one in the hallway. There was loud music playing, which stifled the sounds of what was happening in the room. Each child received more radiation than the one before, according to Wilbert. And Virtus was last in line, behind his brother Melvin. Melvin, after he's done, he's in such pain. He is burning at the scalp, as all the kids are. The doctor is there trying to settle them all down. But Virtus, they gave him way too much. Virtus screamed to the top of his lungs. Melvin heard it in the next room, even with the music turned up as loud as they could turn it on the radio. Wilbert says that Melvin ran to Uncle Clift and told him to go get Virtus, that he was being hurt. Uncle Clift found Virtus grabbed him and the other kids and brought them back to the bus. As soon as the bus started moving, the kids are vomiting all over the bus. They're defecating all over themselves. They're urinating all over themselves. It is an absolute chaotic mess inside the bus. I think it was racial when this happened because why the black school, the white kids had some too. But they experimented on the black children first. And if it didn't work, you know, so be it. Following the radiation, all the children lost their hair and were left with discoloration on their scalps. To cover their heads, some wore flat caps, like the ones you might see on those old-timey newspaper boys. Virtus bought his first wig when he was 14 years old. The psychological scar from the radiation cut as deep as the physical wounds on his head. It interfered with nearly every aspect of his life, including his relationship with the woman he loved. Marguerite was his first and only love. You know why he left Marguerite? Because he felt that if Marguerite ever saw his head, that she was going to turn away from him and, and, and call him a monster. And he had nightmares about that for years and years and years and, and turned around and left her before it actually happened. And never knowing until later that he had made a mistake because that was his one true love. And he said, you know what? There was never another Marguerite. He never loved or was loved, he felt, by anyone. Throughout his life, Virtus only told a handful of people about his experience. He lived and died with it as a secret. When Virtus came to my office, I felt so bad. I remember driving home, pulling into my driveway, and just sobbing like a baby. And something said to me, stop it, figure out a way to make it right. And I said, this is a story that I'm going to spend a lot of my years trying to get people to simply get in front of it. 
And so I asked his permission. I waited patiently for it. And eventually he said to me, well, if we do it, we've got to do it right. After Virtus agreed to let Wilbert tell the story, his condition continued to worsen. And Wilbert learned just how much pain his friend was in. He says, my head feels like the way it feels if you put your hand on a hot stove. And that's the feeling I have 24 hours a day. He said to me, if the pillow touches my head the wrong way, it hurts. So I lay on the floor sometime to get the ultimate flatness where nothing will touch me. Again, all I could do was cry internally because I didn't want him to see me as some guy constantly in tears, and yet I expect him to be strong. I washed his wound for him twice a day. If I didn't, flies would, would, would congregate on top of his beanie because of the smell of the rotten flesh that attracts them. The wound was cancerous. As the cancer spread, Wilbert became Virtus's caretaker. While they were filming, he would wrap and wash Virtus's wound regularly. Wilbert took care of him until he died in 2007 at the age of 85. A few years later, Wilbert released the Hole in the Head documentary about Virtus's life. It's been over a decade, but the story hasn't rippled through the culture like other stories, such as that of Henrietta Lacks or the victims of the Tuskegee syphilis study. Virtus's story may not be as famous as other examples of medical exploitation, but it was tragic, a fact underlined by Wilbert's film. My team and I watched the documentary in the stat office. The film documents the last brutal progression of Virtus's cancer. You can literally see the wound getting bigger and deeper as the cancer ate away at his head. It's hard to comprehend just how exposed Virtus's actual brain was. It makes you want to look away, but it demands that you hold your gaze and see it for what it was. That you see Virtus for all that he was and all that he went through. Virtus said to me, I have been hiding who I am all my life. Starting at age 14, I have been concerned about being seen. And if someone were to see me, they would say, could you imagine living like that? Could you imagine always living under this cloak of incredible secrecy? He says, you make sure you don't turn that camera off. You make sure you show everything. This is my coming home out party. Don't hide me. More than 15 years after their initial conversation, Wilbert is still working on sharing Virtus's story. He completed a screenplay for a feature-length film adaptation of Virtus's life and hopes to start production later this year. He also created a curriculum for children with lessons that can be learned after hearing Virtus's story. So these are the kind of dreams that we have for the story. 
I kind of love the word we because I think Virtus is a part of this. And I'll tell you one thing he said to me. He said, oh, Wilbert, nobody's going to be interested in my story. That's my motivation. Those very words, because I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, committed to doing everything in my power to show him that he was wrong. Wilbert is focused on spreading the word. But to my surprise, the end goal after spreading that word is a little different than what I expected. Wilbert isn't thinking too much about justice or about potential lawsuits. That sort of thing is always on my mind when I hear stories about medical exploitation. But Wilbert has taken his cue from Virtus himself. He's putting forgiveness above justice. Nick, hear what I'm saying very closely because I was like you. I said, justice, somebody needs to, you know, da 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 but Virtus was the one that helped me put it in the proper perspective. I asked him more than once. You'll hear it in the documentary. Are you angry? No. Quickly. He didn't say no. No. It was his response. And the reason I'm not angry is because if I was angry, I know my pride would not be hit. When I heard him say things like that, which were so profound, it changes your life. To this day, I am se- I'll be 72 on my birthday. I think twice before I get angry. I first think of Virtus. Okay. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I completely respect how Virtus and Wilbert have processed all of this. But I'm not sure I feel the same. And especially after watching the pain that Virtus went through, I really wrestle with the idea of forgiveness and of justice. What is owed to Virtus and everyone like him who suffered deeply because they were taken advantage of by the medical establishment? After I talked to Wilbert, I connected with Linda Villarosa, a journalist and contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, who, like me, covers the intersection of race and health. In February, I had watched her moderate a panel with Wilbert and some medical professionals where they talked about Virtus's story and how medicine has exploited black bodies. This country has done a disservice to so many people and um, Virtus is so forgiving and such a kind person. I just had such deep compassion for a person who was seemed so innocent, so kind and trusting. And I think that's what happens to a lot of us in this country. We get blindsided by the cruelty because it's it feels unexpected, even though we know it's happened, even if we know the history, even if other people have told tales of it, each time feels painful and you feel like blindsided by that kind of cruelty. Linda recently released a book called Under the Skin about racism in the healthcare system. In it, she writes about two sisters named Minnie Lee and Mary Alice Ralph, who were taken from their home in Montgomery, Alabama, and sterilized without their consent back in the 70s. They were just 12 and 14 years old at the time. The parallels between the Ralph sisters and Virtus struck me, particularly how their parents were misled by the white medical professionals they trusted. Virtus's parents clearly did not fully understand what sort of treatment they were signing their sons up for. 
that Ralph's mother, who could not read nor write, unknowingly signed an X on a surgical consent form, thinking that her daughters were getting birth control shots. If you don't understand what's what you're signing up for, that's completely unfair. And it's obviously unfair if you are signing with an X. The other thing is, is a bigger question is why are you sterilizing people without, with, you know, why? Why are you sterilizing people? They didn't ask to be sterilized. Um, Virtus Hardeman did not ask to have radiation treatments. The Tuskegee experiment people thought they were doing something good, getting help, and they weren't. And so that's the question is why are black people so expendable? And yet, despite being treated so callously by the medical establishment and suffering great injuries that followed them throughout their lives, both Virtus and the Ralphs said that they had found forgiveness. But what is really owed to them? I think that um, because of our deep spirituality as a people, we are taught forgiveness. You know, our religion, if those of us who are Christian and other religions, teaches us forgiveness. I, I think forgiveness is good, but first I want to see the apology, and then I want to see reparations. I want to see money. And it's very interesting because if you read um, discussions or listen to discussions about, oh, we don't know how to do reparations for people, in you know, Black people in America, we're not sure how it would work. Well, this is how it could work. Virtus Hardeman, people like the Ralph sisters deserve something. They deserve it because they've been harmed. We, in my story about the Ralph sisters, we looked at three states where women and other people who were sterilized have gotten money. In one state, they got $25,000. So the states are North Carolina, Virginia, and California. California reparations program is still going on for people who were sterilized without consent or against their will. This is how you can pay people back is by money isn't everything, but money is something. Something I think about these days is... Just how many more stories like this are out there? One of the reasons I wanted to talk about Virtus's story on this podcast was that not enough people know about him and what happened to those children at Lyle Station. If it wasn't for Wilbert, their stories could have been lost. Linda stresses that it's important to keep these stories alive and to connect them to the present. To do that, we need to keep retelling them. I just think that we have to pay attention to history and um, even near history. And sometimes we think of history as so far long ago, but history is 1973. History is the 1980s. History is yesterday. And so if we keep um, ignoring or sort of downplaying the health inequality and racial health disparities, then we're not getting the whole picture and we're not also having a complete solution. So if the the way we're framing the problem was wrong, then the solution will invariably be wrong. And so part of it has to be not about blaming people for their circumstances and not about ignoring people who have been harmed, but actually uplifting the stories, looking through looking at, you know, our institutions and um, our uh, structures that are hurting people and trying to change them. It's kind of a cliche metaphor at this point. But I think the healthcare system in America is the biggest example of this notion that racism is like water to a fish. You know this metaphor. You ask a fish, how's the water? And they're like, water, what's that? It's all around us, permeating every aspect of our life. 
But obviously, we all know what water is. We get it. But there are so many stories that we don't know, and there's so many different parts of the problem to focus on. Learning about Virtus' history sort of brings me all the way back to our first episode of Color Code on medical mistrust. The question isn't how do we get black folk to trust the medical system after these horrible things have happened. It's how do we make a medical system that doesn't do horrible things. One that deserves trust and one that recognizes its past misdeeds and chooses actively, collectively, wholeheartedly to address them, to rectify them, to not forget them, and to ensure that they never happen again. That might mean constructing medical school curriculums that are rooted in anti-racism, or pouring energy, empathy, and resources into combating America's black maternal mortality crisis, or making sure that the algorithms that run our healthcare system are free of bias, or ensuring that anyone who wants to be part of a clinical trial has access to those trials and that those trials reflect the diversity of the patients that they impact. All these issues that we've touched upon across the season highlight steps our medical system can take towards achieving health equity. And yet, when you see a medical misdeed as visceral as what happened to Virtus Hardiman, you can't help but ask yourself, what is owed? What is owed? To me, it seems that the path towards health equity is really a path towards forgiveness. And it's a path that needs to be paved with justice. For me, at least, what is owed is my attention, my acknowledgement, my ability to do everything I can as a journalist to ensure that these stories are told. And to you as a listener, we must refuse to forget these stories. We must keep them front of mind as we push forward to rectify the devastating toll that racism has had on our healthcare. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, Crystal Milner, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Kevin Seaman is our engineer, and Tino Merced and Catherine Gilliard are our interns. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Special thanks to Wilbert Smith and Linda Villarosa. This episode is dedicated to the memory and legacy of Virtus Hardiman. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. After every episode, we have photos and some more reading related to the episode's topic at statnews.com. This week, there are photos of Virtus on our site. They do include some where you can see his wound, so please take care of yourself if you are going to look at them. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at colorcode at statnews.com. That's it for our first season. We really appreciate you for listening. Thanks so much, and take care.